battle on the border. Republicans and Democrats continue their fight on immigration, plus a closer look at deportations under the Obama administration. The beauty of faith. On the Feast of St. Benedict, analysis of a painting depicting a miracle from his life. And having a ball. We hear about the Vatican's cricket team. On EWTN News Nightly for Thursday, July 11th, 2019. Good evening from Washington, D.C., and thank you for joining us for News from a Catholic Perspective. I'm Wyatt Goolsby, in for Lauren Ashburn. President Donald Trump lashes out at top social media companies before hosting a social media summit at the White House. The gathering included mostly conservative groups. Their meeting came right before a big announcement from the president. White House correspondent Mark Irons reports. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Wyatt. If the president cannot add a question to the census asking people if they are U.S. citizens, then he'll reportedly get the information a different way. The president is trying to bypass a Supreme Court decision that blocks that question. Before he even made the announcement today, the American Civil Liberties Union declared the Trump administration's effort to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census is unlawful. If President Trump takes executive action, we will take legal action. And earlier in the day, the president met with conservative groups as he hosted a social media summit. Google, Facebook and Twitter were not invited. The president tweeted beforehand, the fake news is not as important or as powerful as social media. They have lost tremendous credibility since that day in November 2016. President Trump also lashed out at Democrats, calling them names and then referred to himself as a, quote, true stable genius. Now, the writers and directors of the pro-life film Unplanned were in attendance at today's summit. Twitter had temporarily suspended the movie's account. Wyatt? White House correspondent Mark Irons reporting. Thanks, Mark. U.S. agents may soon round up people who are in the country illegally. Two Trump administration officials expect deportation raids to begin this weekend. Capitol Hill correspondent Jason Calvey questioned lawmakers and shows us how the last administration carried out similar mass deportations. Wyatt, Trump administration insiders say they're going to hit 10 cities, including Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, and Miami. These are people and families that judges said should already be kicked out of the country. Democrats blast these immigration raids, but they've been pretty regular since 2003. The numbers under President Obama were up to 400,000 deportations in 2012. And I was critical of many of those because I think the priority should be anyone who is a danger to the United States guilty of a crime or involved in a criminal conviction, no questions asked, they are gone. But the notion that we are going to break up families because the mother happens to be undocumented and the whole family are American citizens is absolutely unacceptable. Still, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement writes, as always, ICE prioritizes the arrest and removal of unlawfully present aliens who pose a threat to national security, public safety, and border security. And they've been deporting many in recent years. Catholic University researcher Robert Warren finds under President Obama, ICE removed 235,000 people in 2015 and in 2016, 240,000. Under President Trump, that number dipped in 2017, but in 2018, it ramped up to 256,000. The president on Twitter last month threatened. Next week, ICE will begin the process of removing the millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their ways into the United States. 
In fact, judges have ordered many out of the country. Dr. Warren finds the number of people awaiting deportation swelled in 2016 to 960,000. We've got to send a signal to not take the dangerous journey, to try to cross the border, put yourself at risk, put children at risk. And until we can get our colleagues on the other side of the aisle to look at changing some of our asylum laws, then we're, we're, what we're trying to do is really stem the tide of the flow over the border and save people's lives. Democrats say the U.S. should be a beacon of hope. We have a crisis of, of, of conscience in our country. The U.S. Bishop's migration chairman in June said raids like these could instigate panic in their communities and won't actually stop people from migrating to the country. Trump administration officials say the raids are in flux, so they may not happen this weekend. At the Capitol, Jason Calvi. EWTN News Nightly. A lawyer for the family of a Vatican City teenager who vanished in 1983 says no remains were found in tombs open near St. Peter's Basilica. The attorney for Emanuela Orlandi's relatives says she is amazed the graves were empty. She had received an anonymous letter suggesting the girl's remains might be in one of the tombs. Orlandi was 15 years old when she disappeared after leaving her family's Vatican City apartment for a music lesson. Vincent Lambert, a quadriplegic man in France, died this morning, nine days after doctors withdrew his food and water. The 42-year-old had been severely disabled for more than 10 years after a car accident. His wife supported cutting off his feeding tube, but his parents, reportedly devout Catholics, fought to keep the feeding tube. The head of the Holy See's press office says they are praying for Lambert and his family. The head of the church in Ireland believes a rise in gang violence is because of drug and alcohol abuse. Archbishop Eamon Martin is calling for a new temperance movement to address the conflicts. One town in the Dublin-Belfast corridor has seen 80 violent incidents in recent months. Catholic churches in Northern Ireland also have been targeted by arsonists. For more on this story, including the saint whose way of life inspired the Archbishop's comments, visit our partners at catholicnewsagency.com. At least 10 people are dead after two trains collided in Pakistan. The accident also injured 64 others. The country's prime minister has ordered an investigation into what he calls decades of neglect of railway infrastructure. London's iconic Big Ben turns 160 years old today, but it marked the anniversary in silence because of restoration work. Above all, what we've managed to do is to get the paint off that shouldn't be on there. Uh, and so where, where all this stone was black before, it's now just stone colored uh, and it will be much more healthy, it will last for much longer uh, and it looks a great deal better, of course. An architect says the work is on schedule, but it also has been more difficult than expected. Big Ben is expected to resume its regular duties in about two years. Coming up, a Catholic priest tells us how he's trying to improve health care in Sierra Leone. Welcome back. I'm Wyatt Goolsby in for Lauren Ashburn. Bishops in Sierra Leone are moving forward with a plan to create a Catholic health network in their country. It's a move intended to improve the quality of care for so many in need. Last year, Caritas Health Facilities in Sierra Leone recorded more than 24,000 visits by new and follow-up patients. 
Joining me now is Father Peter Conte, Executive Director of Caritas Freetown in Sierra Leone. He's also head of the Sierra Leone Priest Association and Vice Chairman of Caritas Africa's Humanitarian Section. Father Peter, welcome into the program. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here again. We're great to have you back. Uh, there are several Catholic hospitals and clinics in Sierra Leone that's doing good work. How will forming a Catholic health network try to make things better? Well, it, it's sort of coordinating our response towards health. Uh, the Catholic uh, hospitals are situated among the poorest of the poor. And uh, our mission is to help the poor so that they could have health. And therefore, each diocese was working isolatedly. And so the move by the bishop is to get all of the dioceses together to have a health dex so that our issues are coordinated in a very proper way according to our own ethics as a church. The network in Sierra Leone is, is being modeled after other Catholics in uh, Liberia, Ghana, other neighbors. What are some of the things that you're hoping to incorporate that other countries have done? Well, we've been very inspired by the, the Ghana model. I went there personally and to see what they are doing. Their system is quite different, but the fact that they could work together and uh, in, in a way coordinated where there's more better results in that coordination. Similarly, Liberia is next to us. We have all the same history with Ebola, the war, we had similar. So from them also, we got extract to see how they are functioning as a unit and as a network. And so that is what we are taking. Uh, with the ad, you know, advise the bishops that it would be good to set, set up a coordinating decks so that when there are national health issues, when there are policies, you know, there are people who come with health issues that are against our Catholic ethics, you know, so we will come out with statements and these decks will be responsible to facilitate short-term issue. I want to show some video of St. Anthony's Clinic in the city of Freetown. The structure itself, when we take a look, it looks pretty badly damaged. It's in bad shape there. What is it like for doctors and for patients who are using facilities like that? It's been challenge. It's very, very challenging. As I said, our clinics and hospitals are situated among the poorest of the poor. Mm -hmm. St. Anthony is really in an affluent area, but serving the slum community. And it's been overwhelmed, you know, and the structures are in bad situation, as you could see. And so there is need to overall to do another building. Otherwise, there is threat that it will collapse. Mm -hmm. And if we'll be in a dangerous situation, if we are trying to give health, and then there is a disaster out of that result. Mm -hmm. So it's in the city, right in the city, but uh, it's it looked dilapidated, and it's need other urgent attention, and they need to rebuild a new structure in that uh, clinic. You're here in the U.S. meeting with various organizations, government officials about your efforts. Uh, what has the response been like uh, so far, and, and what can folks here in the United States do to help if they want to? I normally call it my annual pilgrimage uh -huh. uh, in a sense that, we, first of all, when I'm out here is to, first of all, acknowledge kindness and the generosities that we've received and to update them of the situation and then to continue to create awareness. You know, many, many times when there is not a major crisis like Ebola, like flooding, people forget you. When they cameraize off you, they don't, you know, conscious that you exist. Mm -hmm. So it's my constant reminder that Sierra Leone needs help. We're at the bottom of many things, high infant mortality rates. So it's this awareness, constant awareness, so that people will continue to help us in diverse ways. Such a worthwhile cause, so important for the community there to keep it uh, in the spotlight. Father Peter Conte, Executive Director of Caritas Freedown, Freetown in Sierra Leone, thanks so much for telling us about Thank, it. Thanks very much. Thanks and God bless you. You as well. Thank you.
Up next, a church in Rome is holding a 40-hour adoration vigil. And why some priests and seminarians at the Vatican will be watching the Cricket World Cup Final on Sunday. Today is the Feast of St. Benedict, and in Rome, a church dedicated to him is celebrating with a 40-hour adoration vigil. The chapel is built on the site where he is believed to have lived in the 5th century. He left the city to live as a hermit in a cave. Welcome back. I'm Wyatt Goolsby, in for Lauren Ashburn. St. Benedict is known as the father of the church's monastic tradition. He's also credited with forming the Christian roots of European culture and civilization. In celebration of St. Benedict, Dr. Jim Sullivan, author of The Beauty of Faith, joins us to explore a painting housed in the National Gallery of Art here in Washington. The painting is titled A Miracle of St. Benedict. Jim, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. First, tell us about the painting that we're going to see and what miracle is being depicted. Sure. You know, St. Benedict uh, lived from the years 480 to 550 AD, and since his death, the church has revered him as an outstanding model of holiness. He wrote a guide for monks and nuns uh, that became famously known as the Rule of St. Benedict. Mm. And that's the figure we see on the left side of this painting, St. Benedict in his monastic cell with the traditional artistic attributes that are given to him, which is his abbot's staff that he has in his right hand, and the Rule, his famous Rule of St. Benedict in his lap. It appears when you look at the picture that, that the painting is sort of split in two. There's this column down the middle. Why divide the scene? You know, it looks like it's two paintings, but in fact it's really one scene that the artist is offering for our contemplation. Most of what we know about St. Benedict comes to us from the writings of Pope Gregory the Great. In his second book of the Dialogues, he tells us, he gives us a kind of biography of St. Benedict, um, in which he describes many miracles, and this painting is one of those miracles. As the story goes, there was a young boy named Placidus who was uh, uh, living in the monastery where St. Benedict was um, abbot, um, and he's sent to a nearby river to fetch water. And of course, the currents are too strong, and so he is drowning. St. Benedict, sitting in his cell, uh, senses that the boy's in danger. And so he calls one of his monks, Morris, uh, to rescue Placidus from the, uh, from the raging waters. Um, after the event, the boy tells the story, recounts the story, and says that at the very moment that he was being rescued, he felt the cloak of the Abbot Benedict overshadowing him. And so this is the miracle of St. Benedict that we see in this beautiful painting. It's incredible, what an incredible story. Um, why do you think the artist, who is anonymous by the way, depicted Benedict in such a way, like you mentioned, with the staff and, and, and all of his, his attire? It's really to tell us who he is, right? It's a visual kind of narrative, a visual gospel, these paintings. So he is the abbot that tells us he's the founder of Western monasticism, very important role. Uh, and then he's got his rule, his very his famous guide for monks and nuns. Um, and, and really that tells us his importance, uh, why he is important for the church in the history of the church. Um, the monks and nuns who followed St. Benedict really transformed culture. Mm -hmm. um, ora et labora, work and prayer, Prayer and work was the heart of the rule of St. Benedict. And these monks and nuns would then transform medieval culture through prayer, 
manual labor, love of learning, and a life of virtue. So what they did was really rescue culture, their medieval culture, with the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, in the same way that this young boy is being rescued from the raging waters. So I think as we pray to St. Benedict today for his mm -hmm. intercession, we can pray for that same fidelity to Christ yeah. and for the courage uh, to transform culture through a new evangelization. So many important values, both in this pain and learning about St. Benedict, both historically and obviously as we can apply it to our own lives uh, today. Dr. Jim Sullivan, author of The Beauty of Faith, thanks so much for telling us about this painting. Thank you, Wyatt. Finally tonight, the Ten Nation Cricket World Cup in Sunday with the championship match in London and a unique group of priests and seminarians in Rome will be watching. They're members of the Vatican's own cricket team. The squad was founded in 2014. Players live in Rome and hail from India, Sri Lanka, Australia, Pakistan and England. The team has met twice with Pope Francis. Joining us now is Father Eamon O'Higgins, manager of the Vatican cricket team. Father Eamon, welcome and thanks so much for wearing your cricket jacket. Why did the Vatican start a cricket team to begin with? Well, it happened sort of spontaneously. We have many seminarians and priests from cricket playing countries here in Rome studying or working in the Vatican. And then a number of years ago, activity got together and uh, someone had the idea and that's, that's how it started. And since then, about five years ago, your team has played matches in the UK, Portugal, Argentina. You even met Queen Elizabeth. What are some of your favorite memories of the trips you've taken? Well, yes, what you've mentioned have been some memorable tours that we've had. We've been to the United Kingdom three times. In fact, this time last year, we played the Houses of Parliament and we also played the Windsor team and had the opportunity to meet Her Majesty after the match. Um, we've also been this last Christmas to Argentina, to the Villas, and there we were playing and spending Christmas with the poor children there. There's a program that helps them to learn cricket, and we spend very happy days there. Um, those are some of the memories. We've been down to the south of Italy just last week to Calabria, and they're also mixing in with the local community. So many, many memories and many happy memories. So in general, how is the team doing? I understand you played uh, against the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury squad last week. That's right, and well, this time we won. Um, they're always close matches. The Archbishop of Canterbury's team is always a good team. Um, we also played Stonyhurst, the Jesuit college that came over to play us two weeks ago. We won there. So as you'd say in the States, we're on something of a roll right now. Well, let me ask you about the importance of faith in sports because there's so much intersection here, so many values that people can learn. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, first and foremost, we are priests and seminarians who play cricket, not cricketers who happen to be priests and seminarians. Um, we don't always realize that sport, and in this particular case, cricket, is such a great cultural medium. Cricket itself is the second most followed sport in the world. You can think of a thousand million people in India for whom cricket is a passion. And to have priests and seminarians who are not afraid to represent themselves as they are um, playing sports gives an image of the priesthood that isn't always projected today. We've also tried at St. Peter's to build bridges, as Pope Francis has said, with other Christian denominations with other faiths. We've had matches with Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Jews, and so on. And it's just um, portraying 
um, a different image of the priesthood and at the same time showing that interreligious and interfaith action um, can portray religion, true religion, as something that binds people together, that's not a divisive issue. I think that's very important for our society right now. And, and like you say, that seems to be happening with this team. Like you say, the team has players from all over the world. We do. Well, this is Rome. This is the geographical center of the Catholic faith. Our team is comprised of players from Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Australia, of course, India, Canada, and uh, while I'm Irish myself, so we have a good representation, and of course England as well. It's a great thing, it's also a bit of a challenge getting everybody um, to follow the same pattern and building up teamwork with an international team, that's something of a challenge, but it does also represent the fact that the Catholic faith is universal, speaks all languages, and through the different nationalities that we have on our team, I think that becomes evident. It is so fascinating to learn about this cricket team. Again, many people may not even realize the Vatican has a cricket team, but it's so nice to learn about it and learn about the importance of faith in sport as well. Father Eamon O'Higgins, manager of the Vatican cricket team, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you and God bless. I'll be honest, I still don't understand cricket. So many different kinds of rules. So credit to all of those priests and seminarians who love playing the game. And that concludes our newscast for tonight. We thank you for watching. For the entire EWTN News Nightly team, I'm Wyatt Goolsby. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from a Catholic perspective. Good night and God bless.